Before we break into the show, I want to thank the three sponsors of this show. CoinKite is the first. Go to CoinKite.com to check out all their awesome gear. They are the makers of the cold card hardware wallet, the gold standard in Bitcoin hardware wallet custody solutions. They've got a lot of other fun stuff at the store for interacting with Bitcoin more securely. Next up is Bull Bitcoin. If you're buying Bitcoin in Canada, go to bullbitcoin.com. They're a non-custodial exchange. As soon as you buy it, it goes right to your custody. It's the best way to buy Bitcoin. And if you're looking for a bit of support on how to set up that self-custody, go to bitcoinsupport.com, run by the same guys. They'll hold your hand to make sure you're getting everything set up properly. And finally, the Bitcoin 2022 conference on Miami Beach, April 6th to the 9th. It's a celebration of Bitcoin and Bitcoin culture, the biggest ever, expecting 30,000 plus people. It's going to be wild. Jordan Peterson was just announced as a headline speaker. So many other great aspects of the event, the Sound Money Festival happening at the end of it all. It's just going to be an awesome time. Use the code RAPIDFIRE to get 10% off. Let's do it. There we go. We're live. Dylan, what's up, brother? How you doing? I'm the dream, John. <laughs> it seems like you've been busy since we last spoke. We, uh, I think when we, last time we did one of these, uh, or not the last time we did a group one, as you just said, but the first time we did a one-on-one, I think you were just kind of sharing your insights independently on Twitter about, you know, macro and all that kind of stuff. And I think you had a, you had a private like consulting sort of thing that you were doing 21st paradigm. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And, and since then, uh, you've kind of blown up. So why don't you tell me what the last uh, 12 to 18 months has been like for you? Yeah, it's been it's been quite wild. It's been a, been a crazy ride. Um, I mean, long story short, it was just like you said, I was on Twitter just being a, a nerd uh, like like all of us on, on Bitcoin Twitter, just super passionate about this thing. And uh, um, got a DM from CK at Bitcoin Magazine about, you know, joining the team um, and their role wasn't really too well defined, but um, <clears throat> just started doing some media stuff there. And long story short, it kind of turned into more of a content side of thing. Um, and then, you know, now that's like, that's turned into just doing like the, the research, leading the research team at Bitcoin Magazine. So obviously we have a Bitcoin focus and everything we do is about basically documenting the monetization process of Bitcoin, like the hardest money the world's ever seen. That's our like big picture thesis. Um, but in between all that, we like to see, you know, what's, what's impacting this market on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis. Um, you know, like I, we put out a, a, a research newsletter and we're not focusing on trading signals whatsoever. We're just focusing on like what could have an impact on this market and like for better or worse, like credit bonds, all of the legacy system volatility that like, you know, we think we're going to, we're trying to escape with all this. It still does impact the market pretty materially. So um, we like to cover that sort of stuff. And, you know, that's why I'm posting about the 10 year treasury yield and, and that sort of stuff nowadays. <laughs> Yeah. And did you just celebrate your 21st birthday recently? Yes, sir. Uh, this, this past weekend. <laughs> Happy belated. Did you have a good time? Appreciate it. Yeah, it was a, it was a great time. It was a long time coming, but finally legal now. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, you know, what do they call it when it's your birthday? The, the date that your birthday is on is your age. Is that like a golden birthday or something like that? You know what I'm talking about? Hmm. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't heard of that one. We got to have one for the 21st. I mean, come on. It's like, if you're a big pointer, <laughs> your 21st birthday yeah. is even more special. Yeah, it was pretty like cool. A, I had a good time your, with, your with my birthday or something. Um, yeah, man. And, and you know, I, I keep thinking, you know, you put out all this insight and I know many besides myself appreciate it. But what, I mean, what is it 
like being, I mean, I hate to be like the older dude being like, you're so young. Cause I remember when people would say that to me, I'd be like, who cares about age? It doesn't, has nothing to do with my intellect or anything like that, but you, you, you are pretty young and like you accumulate knowledge over years. And it's awesome to see people that are able to accumulate knowledge and then synthesize it into insight at such a young age, you know? So like, what it is, what is it like for you? And like, what do your homies think about, you know, what you're up to and, and how many people listen to your shit and that kind of stuff? What's it like? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, like, like I said, for the longest time, there wasn't, there was no like traction to it. Like I was, I spent a year on Twitter in 2020 and 2021 being like kind of an anonymous, you know, pleb, if you want to, if you want to call it that, like, you know, putting out content, but it wasn't like I was thinking of it about like as content, I was just posting my thoughts sporadically as they came, like, as they came to my head. (laughs) Um, and like, you know, it didn't, it didn't really go anywhere. And then, I guess like, you know, I put out a piece about like right, right before we first talked, I, I was, I was writing a piece about like kind of my, my thesis or framework about like the long-term debt cycle in Bitcoin and that, that like did, did really well. Um, and so that was kind of like awesome. the first, the first uh, thing that, that got people to not notice me, like, but just was kind of the first big piece of traction. Uh, but my friends, I mean, it's cool. Like I live with all my college buddies still. Uh, so it's an interesting kind of dynamic, but the, I guess like the, the fame, like the niche internet celebrity, like just on like the, the Bitcoin side of things, definitely weird. Like I was in Austin two weeks ago and some guy like randomly in the middle of the street, like stopped me, which was like, a li- it's like, there's a little bit of imposter syndrome there, <laughs> but it's cool. I mean, like I definitely, it's not, I'm not going to like think it's, it's bigger than it is. It's just like, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy on Twitter, but it, it, it definitely is uh you know, has its perks and, and the advantages yeah. Well, one of the things that I think is awesome about um, creating content or sharing your thoughts in any capacity online that has any reach whatsoever is that just that more people get to know what you're about. You know, like when you meet someone new, you both, there's that feeling out process, right? Where you're like, you chit chat for a bit. I got to see what this person, how much can I trust them? What's their character like? All that shit. But, you know, all of us mixing it up on Twitter and especially those that create more content than the average person, like, people already kind of know who you are, right? So when they come up to you, you can just go right to, if they jive with you, you can go right to like a friendship almost, which is why the conference has been so awesome, right? Like last year, that was the case. I mean, you just meet so many awesome people and it's just like immediate, you, Im- immediately you click. Yeah, you know, so 100%. That's, one of the and that's, like, that's so why public. Twitter is great. Yeah. Um, so tell me, uh, tell me what's going on, man. I mean, like I said, before we started, I... Uh, my focus is not so much on the macro these days. And it's partially because, and I think this goes for a lot of us, um, you know, I'm all in, I've made my bets and I'm going down <laughs> with the ship, right? So it doesn't really matter what happens in between. But I think all of us, even the, even if we're in that situation, we like to be educated and informed about what's going on. And we just have a natural curiosity because we're so deep in the weeds and all this about how, how this massive shift that we're a part of and that we kind of, are very confident about the endpoint, how the transition takes place, and as a result, how we should maneuver through it as it does take place. Um, the macro landscape is super interesting right now, and so you know, uh, the floor is yours. Tell me what you're thinking. Yeah, I mean, so for better or worse, I'm in the same boat, <laughs> where you know, my, I've, I've somewhat placed my bets, um, and you know, did that a while ago. So price volatility from 60k to 
even 10,000 is, is not really anything but a thing. I mean, I'm 21 years old, like send it to 5k for all I care. I'd love to stack. Um, but yeah, I think we're at a really interesting time where, you know, all of these kind of traditional, like if we're in this, you know, Keynesian economic system, all of these like flashing red light signals that usually would kind of, you know, light up before a recessionary period or before an economic downturn are starting to really, really, really like signal yet, you know, the, the Fed's funds rates at 25 basis points. Um, we have the 10 year treasury at, you know, two something percent with inflation at multi-decade highs. It's going to, you know, year over year is going to come in at probably 10% um, in the next month or, or so here. Um, and, and really you saw, I think the, the big shift or the pivot was, you know, funny enough at that kind of local Bitcoin top in November, uh, when, when the Fed, when Powell came out and said, okay, we were wrong. Inflation is not transitory. We have to do something. Um, and I think interestingly enough, uh, Bitcoin is kind of like the most pure market signal of that because it started to downtrend long before the equity indices did or anything else. It was like almost that pure like signal of, okay, the dollar is going to get a little bit stronger. And I think, I think it's important to realize like over, over the long term, the dollars, I like to call it like politically programmed to devalue. <laughs> but over the short term, uh, and especially with this dollar being the world reserve currency, uh, you can have periods of, of dollar strength and relatively, and especially against other global fiats, um, where the dollar is strengthening. And even if it's weakening against a basket of commodities or real goods, uh, it can strengthen against financial assets. And that's what we're kind of seeing. And so since November, we saw inflation continue to kind of rip. And, and since then, you, the credit markets especially we're saying, you know, there's a problem here um, because if you think of a fixed income instrument, uh, they're going to sell off <laughs> with a fixed income if inflation is at, you know, multi-year highs because there's no incentive to hold a fixed income instrument in that environment. So what does that mean? It means that uh, as inflation goes higher and higher, or as f- fixed income sells off, it kind of is is this doom loop where uh, it. it makes higher yields for anyone that's looking for financing, right? So not only from the government, but corporates, individuals, um, as these fixed income instruments sell off, we've seen um, marketably higher uh, interest rates. And even though in real terms are still pretty deeply negative, um, we're starting to see stuff like corporate credit spread. So basically uh, the, the yield that corporates get on top of that treasury curve have really started to increase. So we're, I think we're in the beginning stages of this and like, if you're looking at equities with the sell-off there, it's all kind of been a multiple compression sort of thing. So equities are priced off of, you know, their, their earnings at, at a certain multiple. And the lower that yields are, the more, the more crazy these equities and really every asset on the planet is valued. Um, but what we haven't started to see, and I think this is coming, and I think it's going to be kind of like a, you know, don't blink moment for the Fed, where I think ultimately they'll blink, is... Uh, the financing costs of, of really, you know, the global economy, um, the stuff like the yield curve, where if, if these, you know, durations on yields invert, it really throws a wrench in the entire credit system. Um, and that's predated every single recession. Um, credit is really the stuff that, you know, I've been watching recently because for better or worse, this is, you know, this is the system we're still in. Um, and I think, you know, if this stuff all unwinds, uh, we'll see. We'll see a good buying opportunity in Bitcoin. And so, you know, I'm not selling any coins. I'm not. I'm not going going short by any means. But um, definitely, kind of watching all of this stuff slowly unwind. And the Russia-Ukraine thing is like a figurative Molotov cocktail on the whole situation. Yeah. 
I mean, at this day and age, you know, like at, at peak or end fiat, I think it's, I mean, this may have always been the case, but I think it's really hard to disentangle political and geopolitical machinations from monetary and fiscal policy, basically, right? Like it's, it's almost like everything that happens uh, is related to monetary policy and may even be like a perverse form of monetary policy. And I caveat, like there's other, there's other forces at play, of course, but you know, if you look back through history, when things get really bad, when, when, when the powers that be governments are in between a rock and a hard place, they always look for an external scapegoat or a reason to, di di you know, redirect the attention or the blame away from themselves. Right. And I think we're all looking at this situation and being like, what, what can the move here be? If, if you, you, if you raise rates, you really jam up things pretty hard and things go south and maybe, but if you don't, inflation keeps running hot and you get a lot of, you know, uh, disruption in, in economic coordination. So, and then, you know, we'll leave the Bitcoin be, uh, piece for a second, but I mean, what, what do you think, what's your base case on how this is going to play out? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty interesting. Um, if you just look at like, say federal debt to GDP, um, since I don't know, the early 1900s, <laughs> every time it's gotten to a level like this, we've found ourselves in somewhat of a war. And I think maybe you could argue that that 2020, the war wasn't, you know, a kinetic war, but it was a war on the people. It was, you know, it was a war on a virus, right? Um, an invisible enemy of sorts. Um, and so, you know, we had unprecedented fiscal and monetary response to that, but um, I think if you're looking at a lot of things in the financial system in 2019, it was telling you a recession, a downturn was coming anyway. Rates were already being lowered. Um, the Fed was already expanding its balance sheet with its supposed not quantitative easing programs, which was a repo facility that that was injecting money in the financial system. So like they're already doing this stuff to begin with um, in terms of like how this ends. Um, and the Fed's role. The interesting thing is, I don't even think the Fed and their, you know, their 25 basis point cut or, or hike rather, uh, and you know, whatever they do for the rest of 2022, I don't even think it's all that important because the Treasury market's doing that for them. Um, and so, you know, the Treasury market's trying to to balance a couple of forces. They're trying to balance the the huge inflationary environment that we're in today with the fact that with all of this debt, future growth is going to be basically capped there's you know there's there's so much debt out there uh, that the, that the like in 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 nominal but also i think in real terms there's there's no growth coming in in fiat terms and so um but i think where they're kind of the patsy at the table is that the, the incentive for policymakers is just to continue to devalue and debase and even even though they might get you know fiscally tight for a year or a certain amount of time the political incentives align where they're going to continue to to debase. Um, and so now we're seeing at the same time, we're seeing this huge commodity and energy shortage sparked by Russia and Ukraine, right? And this is where it gets really interesting because if you look at basically every time energy is doing something similar to what it's done today, it's predated a recession, a pretty big one because you know energy prices, it impacts, it impacts consumer spending, margins, corporate margins, all of the like economic activity, you know, like it's just a, it's just a fact. Poor people can can afford these oil prices. Yeah, it's right? the input for everything, um, basically. It's the input for everything, <laughs> and so never mind the fact that we're seeing. Um, and I I like am no geopolitical expert, and I won't pretend to be, but I've done some research, and just Russia and Ukraine. Never mind the the second order effects of, of the West being like you know 
we're not even going to take what you have and what is online for, for oil and all these commodities. We're just going to like shun you because, you know, we're, we're so, we're so virtuous. Um, if you're looking at what they produce for, for natural gas, what they produce for wheat, then inputs for things like fertilizers, all of this stuff is, is just a total mess right now. And so we're seeing a huge shortage of like real goods and services, something that like Keynesian stimulus can't do. In 2020, we had a demand shock, right? They locked everyone in their home, gave them paper money and said, okay, you know, go spend it. Oil went negative, not because, you know, there was, there was, well, there was no demand temporarily, but there was just such a, there was a glut of, of supply. There was nowhere else to store it. Now we're seeing the total opposite. There's a total supply shortage and to fuel that demand, they're continuing to hand, you know, they're talking about stimulus checks, oil stimulus, right? So, so while higher prices should in theory lead to lower demand, we're seeing the opposite and policymakers are probably going to continue to stoke the fire. Um, so how does it all end? Well, I think this we're slowly headed towards gradually then suddenly headed towards a pretty large recession and it ends in, in two ways. But I really think despite it being somewhat binary, it only ends in one outcome it is that credit continues to unwind because of this inflation print, which leads to higher, higher commodity prices just because of a real shortage leading to this, this massive recession and eventual demand shock where volatility explodes, credit unwinds, counterparty risk. Um, at the same time that we have this, this real good shortage to repeat myself. Um, and the fed is essentially going to be forced somewhat to implement, you know, for financial stability purposes to implement yield curve control. Um, and in, in that sense, it gets really scary. And I said this, I think on, on Pomp's podcast like a week or two ago, like, you know, if, if you're thinking of a monetary system, like the, the tail risks of like deflationary, deflationary deleveraging depression, like, you know, big, scary words. And then the other tail, and maybe they're, they're on the same tail risk, but uh, the other tail of like hyperinflation, which is like a really obviously scary word too, and leads to disastrous outcomes. I think those two tails that in theory should be like very, very, very improbable. Unfortunately, just with everything that we're seeing in the next five years, aren't really all that improbable, which is, which is scary. Right. Mm. Um, and, you know, leads us to, to, to look for some sort of alternative. Um, but just but just looking at everything in the credit markets and commodities and, and financial assets and being in this historic everything bubble, that's unfortunately what like my kind of uh, conclusion, if you want to call it, is. Uh, and so obviously, you know, the need for something where we can kind of escape this madness is more important than ever. Yeah. And as you said at the beginning, I mean, Bitcoin is still so is a drop in the ocean that as these, you know, these big processes take place, Bitcoin is obviously going to be moved by them either dramatically to the downside or as we're all expecting uh, at a certain point, dramatically to the upside. Uh, do you, I mean, I, I think you've mentioned before, and I, I think we're all probably familiar with like Dalio's debt cycle thesis and then, you know, the fourth turning stuff. And then I know Mark Moss has been talking about lately, like the 250 year revolutionary cycle. And it seems like many cycles are kind of coming to an end at this point in time or converging. And so like, and I agree with a lot of what you said, but still, I mean, what do you think that looks like in practice? Because when, um, when, when all the COVID spending was happening, because I think society has been, if you want to say fracturing or diverging or experiencing uh, greater division, and I don't even just mean politically, I mean, like all of this 
like absurd monetary policy and the, the whole fiat system has been widening the divide between rich and poor for a while now. And that creates a lot of social problems. And they've been percolating up through the surface and, you know, in, in certain places, San Francisco and where homelessness is, is rampant and where crime and where cultural decay is obvious, you know, you can see all that. And then basically the amount of the, the process that leads to that, which we did, let's say from 2008 to 2018. So over the course of a decade or 12 years, we did in two years during COVID. You know, you spend as much money and you create that much, you, you misallocate that much capital, you widen the wealth divide that much more, you allow, you know, the rich to siphon off a decade's worth in two years, that sort of thing. And pretty shortly after that, you're going to see the emergence of the same social issues that you will, you would have seen in the previous decade, just condensed because it's that much more, you know, egregious in, in a shorter period of time. So when you're, you know, and of course, this is like, as Bitcoiners, we always think about this stuff. But when you see this stuff playing out, how do you position yourself? How, what do you think it's going to look like? I mean, like a either a deflationary depression or an inflationary or hyperinflationary period. I mean, what does that look like day to day? Like, are you able to source food? Are you, you know, in a safe environment, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. I, I had this discussion. It was, it was somewhat of like a not a hostile discussion, but I think some some guy was like, make like he was like kind of shitting on me. Um, I said something about like being the end game of fiat, and he's like, he's like, oh, classic doomer. And I was like, okay, well, my thesis is that we're at the end, like the end stages of the long term debt cycle. Uh, do you, or we're in a huge sovereign debt bubble. Do you disagree? And he was like, he's like you know you you gold bugs and bitcoiners have been saying this every every day for the last 50 years you're telling me this time's different and i posted a, a picture and it was uh, as a graphic and it was from like the, the research that we were doing um uh, like that kind of that that newsletter um and it was the cpi uh, consumer price index and the 10-year treasury yield and and it showed um there was like shaded in green is when positive it was when real yields were positive and in red was when real yields are negative. And so since basically 1981, since like the secular top in interest rates, we've seen for the most part, bonds had a very positive real yield. So inflation was lower than the yield you'd get. So you got a positive return. And since 2020, that is flipped in a very, very, very dramatic way where inflation now at 7%, soon to be eight, nine, 10%. And those yields are still 2%, 3%. And so I think we're, we're kind of in like, you know, that end stages of, you know, I think the 40-year the bond bull market is done. So like the implications are pretty vast. Also, you know, if we're thinking big picture, like peak globalization probably was in somewhere in 2020, 2021. Um, and so what does it look like? Well, aside from having a big bag of Bitcoin, uh, which I think everybody should, um, it gets into stuff like, do you have a freezer stocked with meat or stocked with food? Like, these things aren't going to get any cheaper. Um, I mean, not to be like a, you know, a prepper, but I think preppers have been somewhat proven, you know, somewhat right in the sense that like, you know, a generator, stuff like that is like not a bad thing. Um, and not to be too doomy gloomy, but like, I wouldn't want to live in a huge city. I, I just wouldn't, um, you know, these sort of things, like if we're, if we're right and things get even crazier or even just now, right? Like if we're staying on the path that we've been on for the last decade, uh, being in a city surrounded by, 
you know, millions of people in a, you know, in a blue kind of uh, political environment, uh, dem- like democratic, uh, I, I think that kind of sort of collectivist uh, mindset is is not somewhere where I would want to be. I mean, make your own choices, obviously. But if we're just talking about like big, big ideas here, um, you know, obviously having transportable wealth that you can take anywhere is important. But you know, that's just a means to an end. And if you can't actually get anything with that wealth, like if you can't go buy, you know, the food you want to eat, even if you have all the money in the world where you are, what does it mean? And so in that sense, I mean, there, there's more to kind of this planning, but like land has has some, some you know, pretty important value in all of this, right? Like that's not a bad, that's not a bad thing to have. Um, but at the very least, yeah, like definitely have some Bitcoin. I personally, uh, for the longest time, like I would just, dump all of my cash. I have a little bit of cash, not a lot where, you know, I'm still significantly long Bitcoin, but I have a little <laughs> bit of cash and I'm, and I'm ready to buy some, buy some blood if we see it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I'm, I'm thinking about all this. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a fair point. You know, when, when things kicked off in, in 08 and I was a gold bug at the time, <clears throat> you know, that was basically, I was ringing the alarm bells. Like this is it, you know, the whole shit's going to come crashing down now. And we, we kicked the can down the road for another, you know, 15 years almost now. And even though, you know, I feel the same way now and I look at your work and, and that of many others and think like, I don't see how we kick it down the road. But, you know, I was speaking with Corey, Corey Clipson a few months ago, and I don't know if his opinion has changed in light of recent events and that kind of stuff. But he was like, you know what, I think we're going to kick it down the road again. I think they're going to do it. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking, but how I've I, you know, I don't know how they're going to do it, but, you know, crazier things have happened perhaps, you know, and in, in so many cases in these events in the past, you know, when things deteriorate to this degree, you get these talks of price controls and you get these talks of handouts and you get these talks of, you know, the evil, greedy capitalists and, and all of this rhetoric you see today. And I mean, I don't know what it was like to hear it back then, but it, it's so not like most people aren't shocked by it today, you know, like, Tucker Carlson in the mainstream media might be calling it out, but everyone else is just like, you know, yeah. either doesn't either is either apathetic or they kind of agree with it. Like, yeah, what were those oil companies doing charging us so much for? We got to put a, a price control in place there. And no, but I mean, so few people seem to have an appreciation for how those things play out and have played out in the past. And there's so much historical uh, information about how those things play out. And, you know, and so, and, and with regards to, you know, being a prepper and it's funny how like everyone, it's like, well, what, just like, I'm not a prepper, but I'm just saying maybe an ounce of prevention, maybe a little <laughs> bit of insurance. And it's, it's just the same of any, any other kind of insurance, right? If you have health insurance, if you have home insurance or whatever, what is it for? It's, it's for a potential eventuality for the probability that you might need, that something might happen that's unexpected and, and you're trying to protect yourself. And so few people do that in the realm of, of the essentials, what they need the most, right? You need a place to live. You need something to eat. You need water. And it's, it's all, it seems so absurd until it's absolutely necessary. You know? So when I, when it was, I think back in 2016, I, I did the whole like uh, dehydrated food thing. Right. So you get a whack of like dehydrated veggies and powdered peanut butter and rice and all this crap that you never want to eat. Right. A freezer full of, of, you know, meat is a lot like a freezer with a generator or solar panel or something with a full of meat is a lot better idea. Um, but I did it then and it, you know, cost a few thousand bucks, but the, you know, the idea was I'm never going to eat it, but if you need it, there's nothing you're going to, you would want more. It would be almost, you know, invaluable to you, priceless to you. Um, 
And I think that's the case today, but it is hard to, like you look around and things are relatively stable and yeah, prices have, have gone up a bit, but you know, that in, for a certain demographic of people that's palatable, it's manageable. And it's so hard to think that things can go off the rails so much. But then if you have any appreciation for history, you see how quickly things can change, you know, as we always say, gradually and suddenly. So I, you know, I know a lot of us, and, and the final point on that is, I don't think it's, I don't even think a lot of us consider ourselves preppers. I think if you, once you go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and you start to think about ideas like freedom and sovereignty and independence and personal responsibility and these sorts of things, I mean, you just want to eliminate vulnerability in your life. I mean, that's how you establish ultimate sovereignty and freedom. You say like, I'm not dependent on anybody but myself. You know, and that maybe <clears throat> I think a lot of us dream of like that cabin in the woods or the ranch on the beach or whatever it is where we're power independent, we're water independent, we're food independent, we're, you know, masters of our own domain and that's ultimate freedom. And, you know, I think that's all we're talking about here is if you can establish that, even if things don't go to hell, I think we'd all be, that's what, how we want to feel. That's the relationship we want to have with, you know, our, uh, that's what we want to construct in our lives. It just so happens that that is also a very resilient approach to life for, you know, fiat world going to hell and all the chaos that, that it might create. Yeah, 100%. That's a, that's a great point. I, I think there also like definitely is a, a high probability. I mean, I, I'm not going to assign a, a number to it that they do successfully for however long kick this can, right? Like, you know, like it feels like everything's going to collapse, but, you know, they could in theory just you know, somehow you know, like there's all the incentives in the world for them to somehow, you know, string this thing together and figure it out and kick it a few more years down, down the road. I think in terms of like, you know, they following post 08, they, we had this kind of decade long expansion uh, without a recession. It was like historic. Right. Um, and just in the last two years following the post COVID stimulus, like we're kind of these, I think these cycles are going to get quicker and quicker just with how much debt there is. Mm -hmm. um, also just if we're thinking like big, geopolitical developments it's very interesting that i think we've kind of you know some people said the petrodollar was was shot in the dark in february uh, with what kind of uh, putin did and the freezing of those reserves and obviously russia did some you know like they started a war right um, and some people were saying it's a war crime fair, fair enough but i think what it, it told everybody was that fiat money, sovereign reserves aren't your reserves. And if we're just thinking about like, what does that have to do with this conversation? Well, if we're just thinking about Americans' standard of living, we've definitely, um, and obviously some classes of people have, have disproportionately benefited and some have been hurt by it, but the global dollar order has, for the most part, made consumer goods and everything much, much cheaper for the average American, for the average Westerner. Um, you know, we export our dollars all over the world for real goods and services. Mm. Um, and so if that, and it's not going to end tomorrow, and then there still is all this dollar denominated debt that's driving demand for our greenback. But if we're, you know, if we reach the crescendo of this system and we're on the downturn and, and countries like dollarized nations like El Salvador saying, hey, we'll, we'll use Bitcoin or you know, Russia is saying, hey, we're going to price oil in rubles or we're going to price oil or we're going to, you know, price trade in gold or whatever it is. Right. Uh, if we've reached this period of, of peak dollarization, um, then, you know, Americans and, and all the people like I, that, I don't want to call them parasites because that's a strong word. And, and a lot of times these people like, you know, it's not their choice. It's it's choices that were made for them and they're just kind of cogs in the system. 
but you know, America doesn't really produce all that much relative to how much we consume. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if that, if that is in the process of changing, then we're somewhat in the, in the, you know, in a position for a rude awakening. And, 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 you know, these things take years, they don't happen in weeks or months, um, but years, decades. Um, but I think, you know, these are kind of the big structural forces at play. Um, and obviously Bitcoin plays a potential role in all this. Uh, I think there's a potential in the next month that we see some, some more interesting developments with, you know, legal tender sorts of, sorts of bills. I wouldn't discount that whatsoever. What do you know? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know really anything, but I've just heard some rumblings. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see more, uh, kind of more developments that we've seen since last year. Uh, like, you know, that we had the Bitcoin conference last year. I, would not be surprised. I don't know anything official, um, but I think that's just just observing the trend. I think uh, there's a, there's a decent chance of that sort of development. Yeah, there seems to be uh, rumors to that effect. But you know, to your point about you don't want to be too harsh in your criticism of these people that are cogs in the wheel. Like, I mean, I had, I do have criticism for them, of course, and, and and one of them that I often levy is like a type of cowardice in not, you know, in not recognizing what's, you know, kind of right and wrong and not, not being able to take action that's in line with that assessment. But that's one of the beautiful things about Bitcoin, right? Because I can, I can certainly see absent either Bitcoin existing or understanding, you know, its value, which is the case for a lot of people around the world today. You might just think, well, what's the, like, what's the alternative? Of course, I'm just going to keep trying to prop this thing up because I don't want disaster and I don't see an alternative and what can I do to change anything? So I'll just keep playing my part in the system. And what's so great about Bitcoin is that once you get it and you realize there is a life raft, there is a parallel system emerging. I mean, you can, you can hop off and be like, well, happy days. And then you put your laser eyes on, you become a psychopath like the rest of us, you know, and then, and then it's a lot more, there's a lot more fun. You know, you have, you're able to actually, and that's, you know, one of the beautiful things about this burgeoning culture is that you you develop the the power the means the confidence to actually call things out you know and that manifests in a lot of different forms in in this community and some people don't like it sometimes but i i appreciate it so much because the 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 system so often restrains and constricts people's ability to express themselves honestly and what they think is right or wrong because you know their incentives don't draw that out of them and and in most cases it 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 constrains it dramatically you know people can't say what they really think and mean whether it's in politics and finance and big business or whatever you have to just go along with it and this little exit hatch where you could come into this bright orange new world like you're able to you're able to establish for yourself a foundational a, a, a level a foundational level of security that cannot be fucked with so that you can start developing both the ability and the you know, the freedom to express yourself and what you think is right or wrong. And, you know, what could be better than that when we're coming out of the a fiat system that has, you know, where truth has been uh, not a valuable thing for a long time, where, where other incentives have taken, have, have risen to the top of the hierarchy. And it's so great that <clears throat> all of us freaks are, are, are able to exit and start speaking the truth. And, you know, like all these mainstream media articles that come out and they say like, well, Bitcoin is a threat to the system. And it's true, right? Because the fact that it exists as a parallel system means that you don't have to be so, you know, adamant in propping the existing one up. So, you know, it's, uh, I'm sure we're in for 
a wild ride with all that. Do you, do you ever think about or talk about with, you know, your friends or, or other people in the space? Philosophical implications is not the right word, but what it means to have negative interest rates in a society, you know, in terms of, well, capital destruction and, you know, what, if, if an interest rate is meant to discount the future, right? What does a negative interest rate mean about your expectation for the future? Yeah, I mean, big ideas. And that's, that's the whole rabbit hole uh, in itself. I think in, in, you know, I would say part of it is just looking at the university education system itself. Um, so many people just go to school. Um, and this was kind of a realization that I woke up to in 2020. Um, I mean, my college wasn't all that expensive, but did a year. Um, but just the kind of realization that, whoa, like nobody even, nobody even understands the cost of this thing. They just signed the dotted line. <laughs> An unsecured debt that's forever, that, that, you know, for some people, I mean, you'll, you'll see these like horror stories and a lot of times on Twitter, you'll stumble upon them. It's like this post that got 20,000 retweets and it's like, I'm 35 years old. I have a sociology degree and I'm $200,000 in debt and I've paid 50,000 since I graduated college and my debt's only risen because you're only they've only paid interest. And it's like, Oh my God, just, just seeing something like that is just, it's mind boggling. Um, and so, you know, definitely like a a big idea, but I, I think most people don't, don't really understand or think about, you know, inflation rate, interest rate, the cost of capital, like, like probably we do, but whether, whether it's, you know, subconsciously or not, um, just the, the day-to-day decisions, how to allocate time, how to allocate capital when it's so distorted like this. Um, and, and you referred to like a fiat world with fiat decisions. It's interesting because like fiat, right. And like, it means by decree. And, and a lot of this kind of like upside down world we're living in, it seems like so many things are like, you know, like whether it's like the thought police on social media or like a man racing in a woman's race being the champion. And it's like, it's like a fiat award. It's a fiat. It's, it's like, it seems like everything's so upside down and not to be like, Oh, it all comes back to the money. 1971 changed everything. Like, no, it's, it's obviously bigger than that, but just like, it seems like so much of the craziness of the world today stems from the, the, the truth, like the, you know, the communication mechanism, the coordination mechanism of, of our society, our money mm. being fundamentally just distorted. And like, yeah. it's, you know, there's so many factors at play, but I think that's something that despite, you know, all of us on the internet screaming about it and banging the drum every single day, that 99% of people have, have just no idea uh, the second and third order effects. hundred percent, you know, and it is an interest, like you could say that you're right. Like this is the fiat system and it's by decree. And as a result, narrative is the dominant uh, like dictator of everything versus in a system and a money, like a, a foundation like Bitcoin, where action and the values contained in that action are, are, are so tightly tethered to real world consequences because you, you kind of can't untether them that, you know, what you get is far more real, far more truthful as a result of that rather than, you know, the ability to weave any narrative you want, because the entire system is predicated on decree. Um, and, and, you know, I think this is largely why a lot of us, it doesn't really matter what the current thing is. There's like a baseline distrust, right? It's like, I don't yeah. care if it's COVID. I don't care if it's Russia and Ukraine. 
I, you know, I know there's probably a lot more going on and a lot more nuance than, uh, you know, we're being fed in the mainstream media. And I have such a distrust for the institutions of the media, of government, of finance, of big business, all that kind of stuff that I'm just going to abstain. You know, I'm just going to, you know, hang out with the homies and, you know, send memes around and stack Bitcoin. And, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not going to have a, 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 a you know, uh, I'm not going to pick a side one way or the other because it's, that's, and I think we all realize that that's how we, we get controlled and divided, right? It's, you know, you ha you're forced to pick a side and you're, you're, you're derided uh, or you're accepted as a result of what you choose. But back to the, the, the interest rate thing, you know, it's, it really is interesting to consider. Let's say you, you <clears throat> interest rate, like I said, interest rates are meant to discount the future. So, you know, if you have a really high interest rate, let's say, okay, there is a future, but it's wildly uncertain. So if you want my capital, it's going to come at a high cost, right? If I'm a lender. Okay, there is a future, but things are really great. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the future is going to be even better. So, you know, my capital is inexpensive, right? I'm not taking that much risk by lending it out or my perceived risk is low. Okay, what does it mean when we have a negative interest rate? Okay, is there a future? Don't know. Because what I'm saying with a negative real rate is I'm willing to destroy, I'm willing to lock in the destruction of my capital at a certain rate because I feel it's going to be destroyed even more in the future at a higher rate than what I'm, I'm accepting right now. And so like we're kind of, the bet is the future is, has a lot of destruction in it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's total madness. Um, I mean, I, it just like the, the implications of, of, of negative interest rates and it's, it's not even understood And the finance bros would be like, well, you know, CPI isn't the official, like, you know, year over year CPI, it's going to come down or like all the, all this sort of economic jargon, you know, they'll, they'll throw at you, but it's like, no, I mean, you're never mind bond yields, right? Because people don't buy bonds aside from like wall street, like, just a savings account, 25 basis points, like zero, it was zero for, for the longest time. And, and it's like, and, and the, and like the banks will pitch it to you. as like 10 times the savings rate from your checkings. And, and like the checkings account is 0 0.001 and the savings account is 0 0.01. And it's like, it, it's just total madness. Um, and I think, you know, despite like, I, like I said, I follow all the trends and, you know, I'm mapping out, equity volatility and credit volatility, but I, I am totally definitely just looking forward to the day where money as we, as society knows it is programmatic software and all of this stuff that, you know, like on, on days, like I, I do uh, a little bit of, of advisory work for, uh, for our, uh, like our hedge fund. Right. And so like market positioning and, and, and we're positioned large in Bitcoin uh, and, and we're just, you know, most of it is, is around the Bitcoin market. Um, but on like Wednesdays, every, you know, whatever Wednesday, every month we're, we're looking and reading the, the tones of some dude in a tie going out and talking about what the price of money is going to be. And it's like, <laughs> why, why as a society, why are we doing this? And like, that is the environment today, right? Mm -hmm. This guy is going to come up and 12 guys in a boardroom are going to set the price of money. And we have to, we have to read the freaking tea leaves of what this future policy is going to be. And like, you know, for better or worse, that's the system today. But for worse. being a 21-year-old, 
for worse, way for worse. Um, (laughs) good catch. Um, but you know, as a 21 year old and I, you know, I look at the future that I want and I think the future that maybe, maybe this is, you know, cautiously optimistic that, that I believe I, I will live in that. I want my kids that I definitely don't have yet to live in is, is that, I think it's, it's all outdated and, and, you know, open source software that no one can change and, or control or co-opt is the future. Um, and so, you know, most of this all, you know, whether, whether Bitcoin or equities or the price of the dollar goes up, down, sideways over the next three months, 12 months, three years, it's just noise. And, and I mean, I, I hope, <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, the, the future is a lot, is a lot more, is a lot bright, bright orange, uh, in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I see your tweets sometimes about, you know, looking forward to pristine price signals. And it's so funny how so many of us in this space, like almost get giddy about such a notion. Like you could tell one of your best friends, like, what are you most excited about the future? Pristine price signals. And they'll be like, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? You know, but it's so true. Like, I think it's so absurd that either Powell or, or the board or whatever decides the cost of capital. You know, so as you say, you have like 12 or however many there are, or if it's just Powell, whomever, like a handful of, of people making a determination rather than the trillions of market actions that should determine the cost of capital based on all the different interactions and preferences that every single person has with one another and with the natural world to coalesce a genuine cost of capital that represents the productive capacity of that market in relation to the natural world and what all of them taken together emergently uh, desire for the future. That's what it's supposed to be totally grounded in in reality, right? And, yeah. and then we get to see, you know, like part of the reason why I'm so excited for that is not just the efficiency of, of capital movement and, and capital pricing and all this kind of stuff for allocating and coordinating activity, but it's because like the, the values that we all hold and the future that we all want and the preferences that we all desire to express will now actually be able to be communicated with full uh, incorruptible fidelity. And those will be signals to the market to say, you know, what do we want and how can it be most efficiently coordinated and produced? Because right now, like we have this supermarket entity sitting on the top, siphoning off all this capital to go to put towards their ideological or other or other aims, right? Whether it's their corrupt cronies or their stupid ideologies or just their simple altruistic but misguided allocation of capital and therefore destruction of capital. Right. Like whatever it ultimately is, that supermarket entity gets to do so much of that such that what we genuinely hold in our hearts and minds is in who we are and the type of world we want to see is not able to be expressed in as full fidelity as we would like it to be through our actions. And I'm just pumped that when the, the base layer of society is an incorruptible value signaling mechanism, then we get to see really what we're all about, like as individuals and as communities and cultures and humanity, like who are we and what do we actually want? Cause now we're able to, to, to find out and, you know, I, call me a naive, but I think, you know, we're, we're more good than we are bad at, uh, ultimately as individuals. And I think if we can, if we can have that kind of high fidelity mirror to keep bouncing feedback on and off and just back and forth and back and forth for its own refinement, I think we're going to be able to, uh, experience a pretty awesome, you know, life for us as individuals and families, and also like collectively 
for the world. But we've got to throw off this, you know, this yoke of the fiat system first. And I, I think we'll look back on this time even more critically than we look back on the Middle Ages. You know, we look back on, on the Dark Ages, right? And we say, like, even your image of it. If I, when, when I manage that message, uh, when I say that word, you probably think of like downtrodden and like, you know, people with dirt on their face and kind of like not happy and gloomy and melancholy and all this kind of stuff. I don't see how based on the contrast that we'll have from that point in the future, which is hopefully a Bitcoin denominated world and what we have now and all the absurdity and madness and, you know, irrationality of it all and the downstream effects and how people have been so dispossessed by it. I don't see how we don't look at it as like a, a dark period of humanity. What about yeah, you? What are, I, what are your thoughts on that? I don't, I don't think you're naive at all, John. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I think, you know, you ask like a, a historian, you're like, hey, why did the Soviet Union fail? And like, you know, anybody that has, you know, a somewhat good recollection of history will probably be like, oh, because central planning economies doesn't work. You know, <laughs> you're like, right. okay. So if money is 50% of every transaction in theory, right? And we're centrally planning the cost of that you're telling me we live in a free market? And the answer is obvious to anybody that's done their you know, due diligence here. Um, so I, I agree that, you know, and I hope <laughs> the future looks at uh, this, this time period, the, the period of central, central planning, central banking um, as, as very archaic, um, you know, we, one can only hope. And I think, you know, I think uh, history will look, will look, you know, good upon the Bitcoiners and, the revolutionaries that were were early uh, to to seeing this whole uh, this whole sham and and voting with their pockets with their wallets for for a better future. Yeah, I totally agree. But you know, like just the last point about the absurdity of our time. Like, of course, you make an entirely valid and logical point when you say that, and it kind of, you know, most people, even the finance bros that you might say that to, I'm sure they'll have like a ready made excuse why it's not the same thing and it's not equivalent and all that kind of jazz. But like. And I hate to bring something up so, you know, something so absurd, but also contentious about the modern world, but like we can't even agree on something as basic as like human biology in a lot of cases. Like we can't, we can't even just say like, this is this and this is that. Like the whole, the whole process of categorization that we use to understand our world and communicate and act within our world is like, is breaking down, you know? And so uh, I don't, I don't have much hope for, using logical arguments to, you know, explain this stuff to people. But again, that's why Bitcoin and number go up and all the other elements of it are so, uh, are so effective because, you know, they don't rely on logic perhaps in, in the world that we're in today. You know, they rely on something more emotional or something more convincing. Um, but speaking of Bitcoin, I mean, and it, price talk is not something that I'm overly interested in, but you, you know, you mentioned a few times that because it's such a small drop in a big ocean, all these big machinations that are happening in legacy finance are, are going to have some effect on it. And I think, you know, we've been languishing in the, in the 40 K range for a while now, if there is a recession, do you think, or even if we kind of chop down in legacy finance from here, rates creep up a little bit, the dollar strengthens, do you think that Bitcoin continues to be treated as risk on, or does the narrative shift and it starts to be treated risk off because yeah so there's a, there's a couple of really 
There's a couple of really interesting things that that I kind of watch the day to day, and and I like to think of my approach to like market analysis with with Bitcoin as like a three pronged approach. Um, so there's you know there's the macro environment, which is which is obviously you know if we're thinking about 2020, it was record stimulus, free money, you know everything bubble, pump it up. <laughs> um, but now recently, it's been somewhat of a risk off, right? And so Bitcoin has been kind of for the while there, like January, February, it was almost trading tick for tick with like the Nasdaq. And people are like, oh, it's a risk on asset, okay. Um, but then there's there's the things that I think are, are really interesting where divergences can and will occur, which is like the on-chain side of things, which has gotten a lot of <laughs> a lot of shit recently. Um, but uh, like I think there's there's a couple of reasons why. And then there's the the Bitcoin native, crypto native derivatives. Um, so if you look at like much of the 2021 tops and bottoms, these derivatives, which are just kind of like layered bets, financialized bets on top of Bitcoin exacerbated a lot of the tops and bottoms. So like people were paying outrageous, like essentially interest rates on, on their Bitcoin to go long Bitcoin. Um, so people were paying like 40% annualized to long Bitcoin at the April top. And people were paying, or like longs were getting paid 20%, meaning like you were getting paid to go leverage long Bitcoin at the bottom in July. And then same in the November top, like derivatives almost like exacerbate every single bottom and top market cycle. And so since like November, when like the, the if you remember like the futures ETF and all that launched, um, there was a bunch of speculative money, all that's been washed out. So like in terms of speculative kind of bid or um, even like being net short, there's none of that. So like derivatives were kind of a wash. Where it gets really interesting is that we've had, you know, all of this kind of macro madness going on potential risk off, volatility across foreign exchange, commodities, equities, credit markets are exploding. Um, and Bitcoin's obviously gotten chopped. It's, you know, whatever, 40% off the highs or whatever it is. But if we're looking at like the supply side, which on-chain dynamics can quantify, we can't, we can't show like, we can show potential demand with, with some things, but really what we, we show with the on-chain side of things is like supply side dynamics. And if we're looking at like when every bull run happened, it was usually when under the surface, you know, the plebs, the stackers of last resort had accumulated such a big percent of that free float where that wall of money that potentially was coming in had to just bid the hell out of the market to get their share. Um, so right now we're like, I think we're about 50 basis points off of like, I think 63% of, of coins haven't moved in a year. And that's about like 50 basis points or 0.5% from an all-time high. And the previous times it was like that was at the bottom in 2015 and at in like October, November of 2020, right before the market went parabolic. So like in turn, and then I think, you know, 87% of coins haven't moved in three months. That's like almost an all-time high. And so like a ton of these like accumulation metrics, like the supply side dynamics or are historically as strong as they've ever been or almost there. Um, and I just named a few, but like there's, there's all sorts of things that we can show like, holy crap, there's like not really much of this free float supply that's available. Um, and so really it's a question of, you know, all of these like macro funds that are trading correlations and all that have been net sellers since essentially November. Where it gets really interesting is that when these funds, you know, the, the marginal sellers turn into marginal buyers because the plebs are marginal buyers every single day, right? DCA army. <laughs> when, when the big boys, the guys that are buying bonds and equities and whatever come back and they will come back, um, they're going to have to bid for probably a few million coins and that's it. Um, the supply side has never or basically never been stronger in the history of Bitcoin. And so, you know, the on-chain, we can show that. 
we can't show when the marginal demand will come in. Um, and so that's where I think um, there's a potential for some divergence, but really, you know, whether it takes three months, six months, a year, however long, when this kind of whole system really starts to unravel, and it will just with the debt burdens and the skyrocketing commodities and volatility, et cetera, um, when it all kind of starts to unwind, the Fed steps in, central banks, government step in, more stimulus just basic Keynesian economics. They're going to keep, they're, they're going to want to keep the house of cards, you know, not from collapsing. They're going to try. They're going to print a bunch of money, <laughs> you know, TLDR, they're going to print. <laughs> and that's when I, I personally believe, and it could happen sooner. It could happen whether they print or not, but that's when I believe Bitcoin really is going to do what it did again in March of 2020, but at a, an order of magnitude or two higher. Um, in the sense that like, it's, it's obviously much more legitimate macro asset. Now it's adopted as sovereign. It, it's adopted as legal tender for a sovereign nation, all these sort of things, maybe multiple at this point. Um, and it's, you know, legitimized by corporations, et cetera, wall street. Um, and no one's going to sell. Cause I think more people than ever, or not no one, but few, uh, and, and more people than ever understand this end game. And so when we're just looking at like the wall of money that's going to come in when this, this next event craziness happens, they're going to have to try attempt to buy a tiny portion of this free flow. And it's just math. And it's just like, you know, I mean, 21 million absolute scarcity we see, but in terms of like the supply available for them to buy, it's as low as it's ever been. And so, you know, not for lack of like sounding like a broken record, that's why I, I like to kind of incorporate all this into my analysis. And that's why, despite being cautiously optimistic over the next few months, you know, depending on what credit markets do or whatever, I like own more Bitcoin than I ever have, because I mean, I think it's the, the logical thing to do one, but two, this thing could rip at any moment and might not stop. Yeah. Grade 11 math, some might say, but, um, <laughs> but you know, so that, that's kind of why I asked, because it seems like, you know, as I look at all this stuff, if you just look at Bitcoin in isolation, and, and again, I don't put too much stock in all the, the, the charts and the price predictions and stuff, but if you do look at it in isolation, it seems very strong, as you've been saying, right? But we have this massive, like, you know, undertaker behind it sort of thing, the legacy system and the, and the moves that, it's, that's, that are going to happen there. So I guess that's the, the, the question, right? Like, does, can Bitcoin rip regardless? Or if there is a big, if there is a recession or a big liquidity event or a lot of tightening, uh, will Bitcoin go down with it? I, if that happens, do you think it, like you said earlier, that the cycles happen more quickly at this stage in the larger cycles? Uh, do you think the recovery happens faster too? Like, I think COVID was a bit of an anomaly in, in how quickly that bounced off the floor. But if there is like a broader recession, do you think like two quarters and then they just decide like we flushed out enough, we can't take any pain anymore, fire up the printer? Is that? basically your thesis yeah um it's a it's a great question um i think that's a that's the trillion dollar question um i think that's probably what they want to do uh the question is is does the system allow it in the sense that there's so much layered bets um the credit system is so you know the whole economic system is so engorged in debt is if they just try to for a little bit of pain right we're gonna we're gonna let equities go down 25 percent because we're in a bubble does the whole thing just compound on itself and unwind all the way down? Because that's the that's just kind of 
basically the reality of a fiat system with no kind of hard asset backing is like, you know, in previous depressions, say a hundred years ago, it could all aligned onto a gold base, gold collateral, right? There's no collateral in the system except credit itself. And so if that's unwinding, it, I mean, they could, if they didn't step in at all, it would unwind to zero, like, like legitimately zero, everything, zero money supply, zero equity zero, <laughs> like, cause there's no backing to it. And so I think, I think there's a potential that, you know, we're going to, we're going to let this thing unwind a little bit and, you know, credit blows out equities, just continue to mercilessly sell off. And, you know, up guys with, with just a bunch of basically political incentives and, and really just like kind of social pressure decide, Hey, we can't take this anymore. And so my timeline for that, I, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know. Uh, I think everybody's kind of walking blind in that aspect. Um, but I think there's a potential for this to happen a lot sooner and a lot quicker than, than people think in the sense that just where we are and the kind of the end game of all of this with, with this much debt in the system, whether it's sovereign debt or just total debt, they can't, they can't let this thing get, you know, unwind too much without really everything collapsing, which is, which is somewhat scary, but I think that's just the reality. Yeah. Do, do you think this structure, you know, the fiat currency central banking system kind of necessitates that all, I mean, maybe not everything, because there has to be some kind of exterior market, but like the central banks basically end up owning the countries. And this is what, you know, I don't know if it was Andrew Jackson or some of the, the older presidents in the States warned about, right? Like if you let the central banks in, then, you know, your, your sons and daughters or your descendants will wake up slaves on the country that you conquered or something like that. Um, and in, of course, in Japan, I think the central bank owns over half of the equities on the public markets or something absurd like that, you know, because they, you know, those are the ones that are going to keep having to step in and being the buyers of debt and potentially corporate debt and or already corporate debt, but on a larger scale. And then maybe even equities to keep things propped up, like all roads seem to lead to central banks owning the vast majority of public market, like the country, basically through public markets. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a scary idea. And I think it's, it's happening essentially is that you know, for if we're just looking at sovereign debt, you know, the 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 marginal buyers since since the seventies have been foreign nations, uh, foreign uh, creditors. They buy our debt, um, or really, you know, we buy our like you know oil and in, in dollars. They take those dollars and what they recycle them back into treasuries, right? Mm. Um, and so now, if those buyers, which we've seen have been have been net sellers since twenty twenty, and who's making up the difference? The Fed, right? Um, if that if, the, if those buyers are gone, which at the margin they're leaving, um, then it's all the Fed and not just not just Treasuries, but um, which you know as a taxpayer we're paying more we're paying more just to pay down the coupon of, of our national debt than we ever have. Uh, but also, I think the Fed owns like thirty percent of the mortgage market in the U.S. I think unfortunately it ends with the Federal Reserve and central banks owning essentially almost all of the credit market as people realize, um, you know, a structural change in inflation happened. These, these securities are, are going to basically yield real, real returns, real returns on purchasing power for the foreseeable future. Why should I own it? And to keep the system intact, the central banks are going to monetize it. And so essentially the scary thing is, yeah, we wake up in a world where we're paying our taxes to a central bank or to, you know, to our government to, to pay down the debt burden of a central bank, we're paying our mortgages, we're paying, you know, all time high real estate prices and we're paying the mortgage to who? Oh, well, 
it trails back to the central bank owning the mortgage-backed security, right? Like it is somewhat of a bizarre world. And I think ultimately it's, it's almost, you know, it's quite insidious in a way. Um, but yeah, I think it, it ultimately ends up with the, the central banks monetizing the entire credit system, whether they get the equities or not. I mean, I, it's anybody's guess, but you know, thank God for a vote for a, for a better world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Um, all right. La- last question. We kind of touched on this uh, before, but I presume you, as part of trying to contextualize, you know, your financial analysis and economic analysis that you, you look at the broader historical context in which these actions have taken place in the past. So what do you like, I guess, you know, geopolitically speaking, uh, what do you predict accompanying the, the changes that we've been discussing. I know we touched on it a little bit already, but uh, curious to get a little bit more meat on that bone if you've uh, dealt into history much. Um, yeah, I, I, you want to be a little more specific there? Um, well, I mean, I guess what I said earlier about how everything is basically a perverse form of monetary policy mm-hmm. from the Fed, right? Because like when, if, if monetary policy is in, the, is in, a, in, in dire straits, then the people at the central bank or the forces at the central bank place pressure on the political machine to do whatever. Right. And maybe we've seen like, well, who knows how much of that we've seen because it's also opaque, but you know, like all of this, uh, you know, the Goldman guys earlier in the year saying like, yeah, we're predicting eight or 12 rate heights, rate hikes throughout the year. Like, do you not think that that was probably their buddies at the fed being like, look, we need narrative control, not just yield curve, control and all the rest of it so you say 12 and then when we come out and say eight it'll be dovish and you know that's how we we're at that stage of manipulating markets right and to what extent does the fed place pressures on politicians to do certain things to help alleviate the circumstance they're in with monetary policy directly and so i guess my broader question is just you know how how do you see the political implications of what's happening in the monetary domain you know, whether, and you can take it wherever you want, like secession of, you know, Texas and the mid, the Midwest from the U S or war or that kind of stuff. Just curious to what you're, what you're kind of seeing in that domain. Yeah. I think a lot of it is manifesting itself in collectivism um, just based on, you know, the populace and, and what they're going through. Unfortunately, I mean, you know, <laughs> this has been a subject of a lot of the, the crazy laser ad Bitcoiners, but you know, the great reset agenda, um, and, you know, <laughs> if the central bank owns everything, you know, you'll own nothing and be happy. Um, I, I think it's all somewhat interconnected. Um, and, 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 you know, there's guys that are a lot, maybe not s- smarter than us, but that, you know, they've been seeing the writing on the wall for decades um, about where the system will all go. And it's no coincidence that they're, you know, they're coming out with, with this sort of stuff. Like, you know, we, I think we've talked about it. You've done book clubs on it. the sovereign individual talking about how, when this whole system starts to unravel um, and, you know, the, the, the mega, you know, the mega uh, geopolitical kind of changes that we're going to see in these sovereign nations, how they're going to lock their borders and not allow travel. And they're going to, you know, under the guise of a pandemic, like maybe that was coincidence, but maybe it wasn't right. Mm. Um, And just, maybe it's just natural incentives. And if you like, I I read some, some guy, uh, Edward Dowd, uh, and he was, he was put out a, put out a thread in, in, I think, April of 2020. And he, he's like this former Wall Street guy, worked at BlackRock. And he, he called all of this really early on. 
and at the end of the thread, I just about like the kind of the, the medical tyranny of, of the state and all this. And he goes, how do I, why do I think this? Well, I've, I've sat in the wall street chair for a long time and all I'm doing is thinking, what would I do if I was in the chair uh, and trying to, you know, kind of control some sort of like manufactured or like some controlled demolition? What, what would I do? Yeah. You know, think like a criminal. And a lot of the craziness of the last couple of years uh, makes sense when you view it through, you know, some sort of controlled demolition aspect and, you know, finding some other scapegoat. And so I didn't really answer your question there. Well, <laughs> but I mean, it's fair I, enough. It's a hard one to answer. But yeah, I, I just think, um, you know, a lot of the, the kind of the seemingly random uh, events that we've been going through over the last couple of years are just manifests of, of a system in decay. Uh, and, and really um, politicians and kind of the stakeholders of this system looking for any way uh, to, to deflect blame and to, to keep, the, keep the game going and to, and to keep order, even though a lot of the stuff that we're seeing is, is far from order. 100%, yeah. You know, and to keep, well, as you say, all, to keep alignment with these perverse incentives, like, right, so the politician, yeah, maybe they have a subordinate goal of keeping order, but they also want to not have the blame come back to them. They also want to keep their cushy job. They also want, you know, so all these incentives are leading in the wrong direction. And I think part of what we do as Bitcoiners, you know, referring to this Wall Street guy who's basically what he's trying to do is he's trying to determine like what frame makes what's happening make the most sense. Like what, what kind of what perspective, what, what, like what ultimate objective or goal would make it all make sense. And, you know, to his view, and I think it's pretty amenable to a lot of ours is like, it's certainly possible that this is not accidental, right? There's a intentional yeah. component to how all this is happening. And maybe, you know, maybe it's something as pragmatic as people realizing like, well, the system was never going to last forever. So we might as well juice the last few drops of it right at the end and, you, you know, make off as much as we can, and then we'll reboot things and hopefully have a better position in, in the new thing. And hopefully Bitcoin is putting a, throwing a wrench into those plans. And, and we're going to start with something uh, a lot more fair for everyone. But, you know, that's something I, I think that's why we have these conversations or listen to these conversations is because like all this data is just helping us determine the proper perspective or frame to more ably analyze what's happening and, and make sense of it all for the purpose of uh, allowing ourselves or putting ourselves in, a, in the best position to maneuver through it all. So um, Dylan, any last words before we shut it down? Yeah, John. I mean, this is fun. Like always, I just, uh, I guess I, I owe you a beer, man, because your, uh, your pod back in March, like we were talking about, it was the first, first, uh, kind of, I guess, first podcast, but first time I ever spoke to someone with a, with a big platform. And I think you, uh, helped give me a, a little kickstart in my, <laughs> in my career as, as somewhat of a, of a analyst or just maybe a, a voice in, in all of this craziness. So, Appreciate you and, and the platform that you've given me uh, over the last year or so. Uh, and, and you're killing it as well. And I'm looking forward to, to Bitcoin 2022. Well, that's very kind of you, man. I doubt that I had any influence in it at all. You know, you put out <laughs> awesome work and it's, and it's all you, but I'll take you up on the beer in Miami. It'd be great to uh, have a few drinks and hang in the sun. So we'll do that uh, in a couple of weeks. Cheers, brother. All right, brother. Take care. Okay.